Turn with me to the book of Joshua. We're going to be looking at a, uh, chapters 2, 3, and 4, a good chunk there. We'll be majoring primarily in chapter 3. And as you open up your Bible apps or your paper copy, I'm going to pray for us. So dear Jesus, we thank you this morning for your goodness. We thank you, Father God, for your word. We thank you that you have given us, Father God, this record that we can study our whole lives and that we can never find its bottom, but because of the revelation that you've given to us, it can always feed us, it can always fill us up and nourish us. So this morning, God, let it be a feeding to us. We commit our time in the word to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to start out, uh, first three verses here in Joshua chapter 3. The Bible says here that when Joshua rose early in the morning, He and all the sons of Israel set out for Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, it shall be between you and it a distance of 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. I'm pulling out that phrase, and that's the title of my message this morning. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves tomorrow, for the Lord will do wonders among you. So Joshua is very excited. He's rising up early in the morning for the 815 service. Actually, I think he rose up even earlier than that. Sun rises up. He's thinking, our nation now is at the precipice, right at the point of its destiny. And so as the new leader of the country, set in by Moses, he is readying the people. Now in chapter 2, we read the story of two spies that were sent to go into the land. Now if you recall, Joshua himself was a spy 40 years earlier. He had been sent by Moses to check out the land, and he and Caleb found out that this was a wonderful land filled with milk and honey and flowing with the goodness of God. But as I shared before, that first spy trip did not end well because 10 of those 12 spies came back and reported that there were too many big giants in the land and it was too scary to go in. And as a result of their grumbling and their crying all night, God disciplines them and says, because of your unbelief, you're going to be in the desert for 40 years. Now fast forward to 40 years and Joshua himself is the one leading the nation. And so the Bible tells us here in chapter 2 that he sends out two spies. Except this time when the two spies go in, they're going to report back to Joshua, not the whole congregation. Because Joshua does not want to repeat that mistake again. So these two spies sneak over into the promised land. They're very savvy. They're very surreptitious. They're very good at being secretive. And they go to this harlot's place by the name of Rahab. And so, you know, if you're a visitor, if you're someone from out of the country, if you want to be sort of undercover, you go to a house of a prostitute, and it's sort of a way to be undercover. But as it turns out, they know that these guys are from the Israelites. So the king of the land, Jericho, says, hey, we need to find these guys. We don't have time to go into all that story, but just to say that report had come to the inhabitants of Jericho saying, My goodness, this people that are coming out of the desert, their God is with them. And so the two spies report back, and at the end of chapter 2, they say to Joshua, God is going before us. Moreover, the inhabitants of the land, their heart has melted away. 
So Joshua is now like, we are ready to go in. The whole stage is set. It was an exciting time. This new place was going to be their own home, their new place, their new property. But to get there, Israel had to go through uncharted territories. They had to face enemies that they never fought before. They had to be courageous. They had to persevere. They had never gone this way before. And this is the journey of faith that God calls all of us to, individually and corporately. God is writing a a little Bible in each of our lives. Well, we have a testimony of faith of how He is leading us. Every one of us has a unique destination. Every church in this city has a unique call, and it takes faith to walk in it. And God is specifically designed there to be some stress, not to make it difficult for us, but to maximize our pleasure and to discover the height and depth and breadth of who He is. Sometimes we think, God, why do we have to go through trials? Why do we have to go through difficulties? Why do I have to go through these anxious moments? Part of it is designed so that we can discover who God is, so that we can find out how faithful He is, that He is for us and not against us, as we sang this morning. Life is designed to be a discovery of God. It's designed to be an experience of what you read in the Bible regarding who God is. It's meant to be a mind-blowing experience, just as it was for the Jews as they were going in to the promised land. Who wants a boring brand of Christianity? So many people have left the church or are blasé about the church because it just seems so boring, because God is so boring. But that's not the God that I read about in the scriptures. The enemy comes to blind us, comes to sow lies into our hearts and minds, saying God is this and God is that, and to build these characters of God that are completely inaccurate. It's a distortion of who he is. But when we get back to the Word, when we commit ourselves to the Word, we see something just exciting about who He is. And like I shared in my first two messages, there is a key to experiencing this mind-blowing God. There is a key to discovering a God that is ridiculously good and a God that is outrageously amazing. And it comes down to verse 3 that we just read here. It's about following the ark. My subtitle for my message this morning is, Thank God for the Ark. Let me read it again, verse 3. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. You shall follow it, it says in the NIV. And that's the whole point of being a church on the move, is that we see God move and we move with Him. We don't want to move out of sync with God. So many times we get ahead of God and we end up making mistakes. So many times we lag behind God and we miss the blessing. The whole concept of being a church on the move, being a Christian on the move, is to see what God is doing and to participate in that. And so in Joshua chapter 3, we see that the key feature, the key element is the presence of the ark. And why was it that it was key to Israel's destiny? If you recall when Adam and Eve fell in the garden and plunged, plunged the human race into a sinful, fallen state, from that moment on, God went about redeeming mankind. Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, so God would redeem the world through another man, the Savior, Jesus Christ. But to send that one man, God had to form a nation from which that man would come. It would be a special nation, a nation that represented God, a nation that would be different from all the nations of the earth. This would be a nation that reflected the very mind of God, the heart of God, the values of God. It would represent his kingdom. And Israel, 
from which God, for, which God formed from Adam would be that nation. Out of all the peoples of the earth, Israel would be the redemptive nation. So that he could do what? Give them the ark. What is the ark? The ark is actually God's mobile headquarters on earth. It represents his government, his authority, his glory. It represents the counsel of God, the strategy of God, the wisdom of God, the protection of God, the comfort of God. Out of all the nations, God gave the ark to the Israelites. Let's look at the next slide here. Deuteronomy 14, 1 Kings 8. The Bible says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you, Israel, to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 1 Kings chapter 8, For you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance, as you spoke through Moses, your servant, when you brought out our fathers from Egypt. You know, currently there are 200 nations in the world. I'm not sure how many nations there were when Moses was alive, but to have the ark was to be the only people group in the earth to possess it. What a privilege. It's like being picked to go on the team with the best captain. Israel was God's plus one. When God gave Israel the ark, he made her the bride. You're the one that is going to steward the ark. You're going to be the one that's going to represent my voice, represent my agenda in the earth. Out of all the nations in the earth, you are the ones that has that responsibility. The ark is everything. God vested himself and manifested himself through this humble object. I want us to just see a, a picture of what the ark looked like in case you're not familiar with it. So this was um, a rectangle. It wasn't a very big rectangle. It was about three and a half feet wide by a foot and a half deep and a foot and a half high. It was made of acacia wood. Acacia wood was wood that was harvested and planted in the desert. It could survive in very arid conditions. It was a very hardy wood, but there was gnarliness to it. And that's a picture of our human nature. And God would put the gold. He instructed the craftsmen to put gold around it. And on both ends of the ark, there was these uh, tent poles that were put in through the rings. And on top of the ark, there was something called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat had these two cherubims. They touched wings. And once a year, when the holy priest would go into the Holy of Holies, which contained the ark, the voice of God would speak. Inside the ark, there was three items. There was the Ten Commandments. There was Aaron's rod. And there was a bowl which contained the manna. All pictures of God's supernatural provision. And so this ark was gold, and it spoke of just the royalty of God. It was this humble piece of furniture that God said, I'm entrusting to you, Israel. And by the way, I hope you will catch the parallel as we go on, that the church is the only nation in the earth in which God has entrusted his presence. We have an unfair advantage. We are the ones to steward the very counsel, the very agenda of God. That's why we can be on the move for him. And by the way, those two poles that go through the, the ends, God said specifically in Exodus 25, never remove the poles. In other words, always be ready to go on the go. Always be ready to be on the move. I'm a mobile God and I will lead you into a good place. 
This is the key to being a church on the move. I don't know what exciting things that God has planned for five stones. That's part of the adventure of God. If you don't like adventure, don't follow Jesus. It's just that simple. He loves adventure. He's not boring. We don't know what the chapter is going to be. We don't know what faith steps he will ask us to take because we haven't gone this way before. The story is still being written by the Spirit of God. Yes, it's scary, but here's our confidence. We follow after him. The position of the ark on the priest's shoulders was extremely significant because that represented God's government on his people. The reason why God gives us the ark is so that it will be on our shoulders. We follow his presence. We're not in the dark. God lights our way with the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He goes before us. He's a covering over us. He's our front guard, our rear guard. Provides water, food in the desert. Keeps our feet from getting sore. Our sandals don't wear out. Sorry, ladies, only one pair. (laughs) And every day he provides manna for us. There is no other gig like this in the world. This is what the ark represented. It's God in our midst. You know, David so understood the ark that he went wild when he became king. He brought the ark into Jerusalem, and the Bible says he started to dance. He stripped down, and he was so enthused that the scripture says he was undignified. He didn't care if he was the king. He didn't care if the whole nation was looking at him. The most important thing was in front of him, and that was to give glory to God with all his limbs and all his arms and to dance wildly before the presence of God. Why? Because there's an extravagant love that God has for you and for me. We sang about it this morning. Psalm 27, 4, David wrote in his journal, one thing I have asked of the Lord. If you could ask for one thing, would it be for wealth? Would it be for success? Would it be for power? David had all those things, but instead he said, I don't want any of that. The one thing I want in life is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. Do you know you have a beautiful God? Do you know that God is not ugly? Anytime you see a portrayal of God or Jesus as ugly, it's a lie. It's not true. When David worshipped God, he came into an understanding. His eyes were opened. He saw the glory of God. It's where his presence was. There was nothing like it. His beauty was as majestic as the mountains and as vast as the oceans. Beloved, my passion as a pastor is that you experience this God. That you see this God and follow this God. I fail as a pastor if I don't help you see how wondrous God is. So the ark was Israel's compass. It was God's real-time leading of the nation, which means the ark was also supremely practical. There's that word again, practical, which I brought out in my last message. We can think of Christianity as spiritual and heavenly, and it is. Our faith speaks to the big things in life. God's sovereignty is involved in the affairs of men and the destiny of nations. And as I reminded the first service, let's be praying for Canada as we go into our election season, October 21. Everyone should get out and vote according to your conscience and conviction. But we're going through some troubling times right now. The leader of our country is going through some spasms. And yes, 
Christianity speaks to these big things, but it's also involved in the practical details of our life. The ark is not far away. It's right here. It's close. It's at hand. Remember when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand? He was speaking to that picture about the ark. Part of how the ark proves its glory is by being wise and powerful in our daily lives. And this is how we need to see this story unfolding in Joshua chapter 2, 3, 4, and further down. God is proving his glory in real-time practical ways. So let's look at a, a few practical ways that the story gives to us. Number one, priests go first. This refers to chapter 3, verse 6. Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. So Joshua is a commander, but God tells him something completely different. This was not going to be a campaign where the military went first, where the horses and chariots led the way. This was a priest's go-first strategy. In other words, if we want to be a church on the move, we must be priests before we become conquerors. Intercession must go first. Worship must go first. Prayer must go, for, go first. Many times, I don't, actually, I have a routine where I don't work on my sermon until after our prayer meeting on Thursday nights. Because that's the time when we're together, 10, 12, 15 of us, we're worshiping God, and God quickens things to me, speaks things to my heart. <coughs> they become the, the framework or the backbone of what I need to share on Sunday. All of that comes out of being before God, where God gives us his understanding and his revelation. Taking ground must be preceded by seeking God. God wants to put the ark on our shoulders. And without worship and prayer, there's no government on us, no authority to go forth. I was talking to a, a sister recently. She's in her golden years. She's at a time where she's retiring. And she came to me and she said, you know, I've been offered a, a really great job that will take care of me financially. It will really capitalize on my giftings. But I'm torn between taking this opportunity and continuing a ministry door that God has given to me. And so she said, you know, can you pray with me? I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's pray and let's get together in two weeks and see what God is saying to our hearts. And so when we met two weeks later, she was so excited. I had some things that I wanted to say, but she didn't even let me say it. She was just like, Pastor Rich, God has given me a very clear answer from the Bible what to do. And she turned to this passage. She shared it with me. And as she was just giving me the details of what God said, I had such a witness in my spirit that the Spirit of the Lord had spoken to her. She said, I'm supposed to decline this great job offer, and I'm supposed to instead continue on in this ministry work that he's given me. God was filling her with faith, and she had excitement and spiritual strength. But what God was doing was he was putting the ark on her shoulders. You know what you're supposed to do. You know my leading. I have a book that I'm going to be <clears throat> submitting to publishers in the next couple months on church planting. Be praying with me that there will be a, a publisher that will find it good to, to put out there. But one section in my book is about the leaders at the, at the church Antioch in Acts chapter 13. And we're talking about the most powerful prayer meeting in history because as the leaders got together to pray and to seek God, it says they fasted, they sought the Lord, they were ministering to God. They were being priests first. And then the prophetic voice came, the Spirit of God set apart for me Barnabas 
and Paul for the work that I have assigned to them. And this is just a beautiful picture that as God spoke, he was putting the ark on Barnabas' shoulders and on Paul's shoulders. They would go forth in his anointing. They were commissioned by him. They would not start planting churches without the leading of God. That's why I say planting churches begins before the throne of God. Every church advancement, every chapter in our life begins before the throne of God. In the natural, we like to lean on our own strength. And then afterwards, oh God, please bless my efforts. Right? How many times have we done something and go, oh, I forgot to pray. Wow, such a simple discipline. Let's get the sequence right. Let's pray first and then move in God. We like to exert our own ideas. And then we ask for God's blessing when God may not have led you in that direction. We need to take our priestly roles seriously. We need to do it first and then we spare ourselves a lot of headaches and wasted time and mistakes. God wants you to be successful. He wants you to be effective. And that comes from, move, that comes from moving when he moves. Think about how effortless it was for Jesus when he went about his ministry and how he did so much in so little time. Only 10% of his life was actually spent in ministry. 30 years was spent in anonymity, three years in public ministry. He became the lamb of the world that saved all of humanity from its sins. All the signs and wonders and miracles and the teaching that he did, he did so much with so little. And how could that be? Because he had the ark on his shoulders. He never moved without the ark. Second point here. Chapter 3, verse 8. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the ark of the covenant, saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So the second thing that God says is stand in the water. When God tells us to move out, we want the waters to part before we step out. But God says, no, I want you to step in the waters, stand still, and then you'll see the waters part. Now, this is crazy. What if we step out? What if we step into the waters and nothing happens? We look so foolish. Here these priests are going out there, leading the nation. They get into the Jordan River. Nothing happens. They could look very foolish. Wouldn't it have been easier if God told them to just make boats or canoes or build a bridge? But no, God was going to do it in a miraculous way. God was going to show them how incredible he was and how amazing the journey to their destiny was going to be. But they had to do their first, they had to take the first step into the waters in order to see the Jordan part. So the priests step into the water, and then the Bible records for us what happened. When those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priest carrying the ark was dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. We're not talking about low tide river. We're talking about high tide river when it was overflowing the banks. God was specifically making it extra difficult so that he could display his glory and his power. When you are up against the wall, when something seems very, very difficult, 
And if God has led you to that place, do not despair. Christian, God is with you. When Paul and Silas were in jail in Philippi, they could have said, what in the world has happened? Why are we in jail? We're doing this for Jesus. And how is it that we're getting beaten and we have these shackles on our ankles and our feet? They didn't do that. What, is this? what did they do in Acts 16? It says they started singing praises to God. Hymns. And all the other prisoners heard and an earthquake came. You've got an earthquake shaking God that will move on your behalf. And so even though the waters were at the high tide, the highest point, it says there in verse 16, the waters which were flowing down from above stood up and arose in one heap. I just love the language of the Bible. Just stood up in a heap. A great distance away from Adam, a city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down towards the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. Man, can you imagine what it felt like to be one of those priests? We don't have their names. The, the privilege that they had to walk into the waters and all of a sudden this rushing sound of the waters going up in a heap. And you could just hear the gasps of amazement behind them. God is doing this. This is crazy stuff. The first generation under Moses saw the Red Sea part, but they died. No one from that generation that saw the Red Sea part was able to pass on their testimony to the next generation. They didn't have that testimony. So God said, you know what? I need to reignite that same faith in the new generation. So they're going to see the Jordan part. They themselves will know, not by secondhand, but by firsthand account, that I'm a God that does all things, that nothing is possible. I'm going to give this generation a parting gift as well. Watch the Jordan heap up. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And this is such an important part of being a church on the move. We need to realize our God is a supernatural God. We are so inundated with naturalistic thinking, we forget that that's his very nature. If we just have a Babylonian, Egyptian mindset, we will never get to the place where we cultivate this expectation that God is going to move on our behalf. When we moved into this building in 2003, we barely had enough money to do it. We moved into this place with about 70 people. How do we get enough money from 70 people to pay the rent, to do something like this, to renovate? But God provided manna in the desert. For nearly five years, we had outside funding of $250,000 that allowed us to stay in this location because God wanted us in this location. God is a God who does wonders. We need to be ready for that. Part of moving with God is the readying of the heart. This is the kind of expectation that the Lord wants us to possess. But it all begins with stepping in the direction of God's leading, standing in what seems to be an obstacle, and then watch God part the waters. Third point, verse 14. So the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan, with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. The third thing that God said to the people practically is, you have to move your tents. You have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to be willing to break camp and move to another place. And this is not easy. We're creatures of habit. We're creatures of comfort. 
And we never know how strong those feelings are until our flesh is disturbed from its normal routine. We never really know how strong our flesh is until our routine is disturbed. We have all these hidden preferences inside of us. We have all these, these things that we like and we don't like. And until a situation comes to expose it, we never knew that we would get angry. We never knew that we would get impatient. We never knew that we would get upset by those things. Like going to Tim Hortons and not getting a donut. <laughs> when I married Mimi, I thought, you know what, I'm just a very easygoing guy. I'm not really big into fashion. I can just, you know, just wear just sort of very chill, humble clothing. And then Mimi with her little design fashion, I said, oh, you should wear this and you should wear that. And and I go, no, I don't like that. No, I don't want to do that. And all of a sudden, it begins to surface all these things inside of me. It's like, no, I don't like that. That's on a very, very little picture. But when God starts to speak to us and for us to move as a congregation, our flesh can try to complain. And if we want to make it to the promised land, we need to stir ourselves up. We need to get ourselves going. We need to shake off our passivity, shake off our immaturity. You know, the one thing about kids is when they have a tantrum, you know they have a tantrum. But when adults have a tantrum, they have a way of just covering it up. But a lot of people are tantruming. Oh, I don't want to do that. Pastor Rich has asked me to do that. They're having all these little tantrums, and we have to shake off immaturity. We need to embrace sacrifice and take on the task, no matter the discomfort. Going to these two services requires adjustment for everyone. I have to say, I applauded the first service more than you because they adjusted more than you. You just come 15 minutes later. Actually, everyone is adjusting. But this is just the beginning of what God wants to do. What if he wants a third service or a fourth service? What if he wants to open more locations? What if we have to embrace new buildings? What if revival hits? This is a whole church project. Are there moments of irritation and aggravation? For sure. Tempers flare. Miscommunication happens. But church, never forget the big picture, why we're doing this. This is not about us. We're not just trying to create activity for activity's sake. We're busy enough as it is. The only reason we do these things is because it's about Jesus. It's about making more disciples. So whatever changes or commitments you have to make, make the grumbling go away by seeing the big picture. It's about serving him, impacting the city. We all have our part to do. Every one of the Israelites had to move their tents. Every one. If you don't move your tent, you will be left behind. Fourth point, chapter 4, verse 10. The priest who carried the ark was standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And then this key phrase, and the people hurried and crossed. When God moves, we have to move quickly with him. There are prophetic seasons where corporate grace comes upon an entire people to move them into a new season. And that grace is there to move you quickly, fast, and aggressively. Can you imagine one to two million people moving across the Jordan? Unbelievable, right? This is a crazy moment. And do you know how long it took 
to move those two million people across, everyone in their household, all their belongings, all their livestock, it took one day. Just one day. The way that God parted the Jordan was part of the miracle. When the Jordan was cut off and that heap of water was up, it meant everything downstream was dry. In other words, a huge amount of people could cross over at the same time. It wasn't just a narrow passage where people would have to queue up, wait in line to squeeze through a 100 or 200 meter opening. We're talking kilometers of dry riverbed. And so two million people were able to cross over in one day. This is given to us in chapter 4, verse 3. Everyone crossed over. So this shows how powerful God's prophetic purposes are. It graces an entire people, a whole nation to move with him. Everyone gets under that grace. It's a wondrous thing to see people move in unity and to do it quickly. One of the things that we pray regularly in our prayer meeting, Lord, move us in unity, knit our hearts together. Let there be no one that's left behind. And what could be more fun, more exhilarating than moving with God? It's all part of the journey and the, the story that, of God at work. And then a fifth thing that God speaks to them is to remember the goodness of God. Chapter 4, God tells Joshua, command them, that is the leaders from each of the 12 tribes, saying, take up for yourself 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan and from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So there's that insight for us that it all happened in one day. It says, Joshua, you're going to have a dry riverbed, have every one of the leaders from the 12 tribes, a representative, take up a stone and carry it over because that's where you're going to lodge tonight. In one day, they will cross over. Verse 20, those 12 stones which they had taken up from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we crossed. Signature moments require due commemoration. God's goodness must be remembered. Israel set up 12 stones, not 5, not 8, not 10, 12. No tribe was left behind. All were included in the blessing of God. This move that God wants to bring to us is an all-church blessing. The whole family needs to labor together so that no one gets left behind. Right in the middle of this celebratory thing, there's this verse 12. It's very interesting. <clears throat> it says, The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in a battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. What's going on here? And this is one of the fun things about studying Scripture. You can go along, and all of a sudden there's something that stops you and go, I need to ask a question. Why is this here? Well, if you back up a little bit, you understand the historical context. This is a picture of Israel. And the Promised Land was west of the Jordan River, between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. 
Well, what's wrong with this picture? There are three tribes on the wrong side of the promised land. What are they doing there? They're not supposed to be there. Well, what happened was, in Numbers chapter 32, as the nation was moving into place to cross over, three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they had tons of livestock, they saw the land, and they said, you know what, it's really good here. We don't need to cross over. We're just going to stay on this side, and we're going to have a good life. And Moses hears this, and he gets really upset. He goes, are you kidding me? After 40 years in the desert, we're moving towards the promised land, and you want to stay on this side of the promised land? Are you trying to dishearten the people like the 10 spies? And so the leaders of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh go to Moses. Moses, we're sorry. That, that's not our heart. Our heart is we want everyone to get to the promised land. So here's what we'll do. Can we stay on this side if we promise to send our men of war, all our sons, to go over the Jordan River and we'll conquer all the enemies, and once the land is settled, then we can come back. And on that proposal, Moses said, you know what, it's not planned, what was planned, but that's a good proposal. You have an all-in mentality. You want to be part of the family. You want to contribute to what God is doing. And that's a powerful lesson for us, that we have to do this as a family. Here at Five Stones, no one is left behind. 100% of the people doing 100% of the work. Not 20% doing 80% of the work. Not 20% giving 80% of the finances. Not 20% of the people doing 80% of the ministry. 100% doing 100%. That's what we see right here in this chapter. The degree in which we don't serve altogether is the degree to which we are handicapped and underperforming. 100% of our members should be in cells. 100%. Every single one. And every single person should be serving in some capacity. Next week, we're going to hear from Pastor John. He's going to talk about Cell Group Sunday. If you're not connected to a cell, you should be connected to one. You should join one. Doing life together. That's where we get to fellowship. We get to support one another. We get to get outside of our own self-bubble and learn to serve and to care for others. This is the picture here. Church on the move is everyone is involved. We all get to celebrate God's goodness, to taste and see that God is good. You know, God is the best memory maker ever. And when we set up our stones in remembrance and we look upon those stones, it floods our soul with joy when we think back, right? Isn't this why we look at pictures? Isn't this why we have scrapbooks? Isn't and this is why we, we take time to remember just awesome and great things of the past? I said before, if my house is on fire, there's only two things I would grab, my Bible and my photo albums. Every time I look back to my cute little kids, the cutest things ever born, I get so happy. I'm sorry to be overtly biased, but is this true? <laughs> and so when God tells them to set up these stones, it's meant to be that memorial. It's meant to be that generational thing. And it's meant to celebrate and to recall the goodness of God. Now back then, Israel was the only nation in the world that had the ark. 
But today there's only one nation as well that has the ark. That nation is the church. Peter says you are a holy nation, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. At Pentecost, God said, I'm going to put the ark into every person. I'm going to fill every single one with my Holy Spirit. That voice that spoke in the holy place over the mercy seat, that was the Holy Spirit. Now I'm putting that Holy Spirit in every single person. And so we are blessed as a nation. We have an unfair advantage. God is in our midst. The throne is here. His glory is here. And I love how God manifests His glory. It's in such a humble way. Right? Think about the manger. King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of heaven and earth. The God who mapped out your days before you were even born. He was born in a manger next to the sheep and the goats. And the... Think about Jesus growing up in a carpenter shop. Trained in His family business. He didn't come from the high blue blood rabbinical schools in Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John, they got saved right there in their fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee. You think about the pool of Bethesda and Jesus going there and, and all the people that were hurting and handicapped and crippled. It was probably like downtown Eastside. And that's where the glory of God manifested. The Lord has His just unique and beautiful ways. Our church has this little front door, two steps and you can go by it. A lot of people say, oh, I didn't know a church was here. You may not notice, but if you step in and explore, you're going to find an amazing God. So these five things I'm drawing out for us from the text this morning, we need to pray. We need to be priests. We need to individually seek the Lord. Come out to our prayer meeting on Thursday nights because God wants to put the ark on your shoulders. We need to step into the waters of faith. Not say, okay, God, please part the waters for me first. Give me the insurance policy. No. You're going to have a much greater story if you step out in faith and then see God part the waters. We need to move our tents. But I don't want to pull up my stakes. I don't want to move it over to that side of the yard where the sun doesn't shine quite as brightly or there's varmints or there's gophers over there. No, I don't want to be in that part of the yard. We need to understand God's prophetic season. If we are a people of the Spirit and we can discern that God is moving, then we need to raise up ourselves and say, God, let your wind move me along. And then we need to commemorate and we need to celebrate the goodness of God. Last slide here from Joshua chapter 4, Joshua chapter 3. Church on the Move is about being a witness for Him and to testify to His wonder. The Lord told Joshua right up front in Joshua 3, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And then in Joshua 4, the Bible says, Just as the Lord your God has done to the Red Sea, which you dried up before us until we crossed, all the peoples of the earth will know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. God doesn't need advertising. He doesn't need social media. He doesn't need a marketing campaign. He is well able to make himself known. And he wants to do it through you and me. That's what it means to be church on the move. Can we follow that ark? Can we be a prophetic people? Heavenly Father, we look to you right now. I thank you for each person here at Five Stones Church. What a joy and privilege it is for me to be a pastor here. What a joy it is, Father God, to just 
do life together. And Lord, our heart, and may it be the heart of every church in Vancouver, is that we want to move with you. Let your ark, Father God, speak to us in very practical ways what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But Lord, when it hits us, may we move quickly. May we move our tents. And may we say, God, it's for your glory, for your witness. We thank you now, God. Speak to us this week as we ponder these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.